Thank you very much. Good morning. Good afternoon, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. Good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad you are here. Thank you for making us your church home for an hour today. We're going to start our series on our seasonal sermons. And so today we're going to be concentrating on the idea of Thanksgiving. And then the following weeks we'll begin to, to build toward Christmas. Turn with me over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. The title, the title of the sermon is Thanksgiving, the will of God. Thanksgiving, the will of God. Paul is writing, and he says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Lord, help as we study. Three things about which I'd like to speak. One, how we need to customarily rejoice, how we need to constantly pray, and consistently, lastly, give thanks. Paul is writing to a church that was born in trouble. If you look at Acts chapter 17, you'll see the church at Thessalonica was one that, that had a lot of difficulty in its beginning. As Paul was reasoning with many of the Jews in the synagogue and convincing them that Jesus was the Christ, there was a lot of opposition. He leveraged the moment of some people who came to faith and then began the church in a man named Jason's home. Jason had, had some degree of notoriety in the city, we believe. And some other Jews had come from the city to capture him and make him the scapegoat for the entire group of people that became the church. Both the leaders, who were Paul and Silas, and then some others, stating this, that those who have upset the world, the entire world, have come here also. And they captured Jason, were going to punish him, but made him pay a bribe in order to get free. This is the way the church was birthed. And I don't know that it went much better after that. But this is the inheritance of everybody who claims the name of Christ, who identifies with Jesus, is that we will suffer tribulation. He said you will. But be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. Tribulation is our portion. We shouldn't think of it as something that's unusual, but we need to embrace it as a part of our inheritance. Though we love the idea of being in comfort and living in an environment that's at least tolerant of us, not antagonistic to us, that is not, that is not the history of our forefathers in the faith. The Old Testament had people who loved God prophets that were that were killed between the porch and the altar. A man named Zechariah, not the guy who wrote the book of Zechariah, but another prophet was killed. Other prophets were treated terribly as a result of bringing words that the people did not want to hear, and they were killed by their own people. We see the disciples, only one of which made it out alive going to heaven without suffering as a martyr. And that's John, and it's not for lack of want of Rome. John was actually... It's, legend has it that he was boiled in oil, but he wouldn't crisp up. He wouldn't burn. They didn't know what to do with him. Everybody else, all the other disciples, were martyred, killed for their faith. 
and generally speaking, by the Jewish people who did not believe that they were legitimate. And so, whether it was the original disciples or the church in the first century that suffered difficulty all the way through, especially with Nero, who blamed the Christians for everything and considered it a privilege to put them on the, on the cross and indeed light some of those crosses on fire as lights, street lights for people that might walk and need illumination at nighttime. Nero was horrible. This is our portion. And the church at Thessalonica was not immune. They were familiar with, it, with what it meant to suffer. Thus, Paul starts with rejoice always. Generally, you don't need to tell people to rejoice when Publishers Clearinghouse shows up at the front door. It just kind of comes naturally. $5,000 a week you will receive for the rest of your life. Even atheists say hallelujah. But as Paul is writing this letter and he comes to the end, he wants to remind them of something that's really important. That rejoicing does not need to be that which is done only when circumstances are favorable. Rejoicing is that which needs to be done always, at all times. And specifically during those times when nobody thinks rejoicing is the normal thing to do at the moment. And we Christians can take that not just as a discipline, but as a lesson. How in the world can somebody rejoice when their life is going really bad? What, what prompts them to do the thing that is, that is really antithetical to the circumstances? Contrary to the moment, that which is counterintuitive, how does somebody rejoice in the midst of difficulty? When they think their life ought to be going in one direction and everything is coming against them and will not, will not permit them to go in the direction they believe is most important. Whether it be the difficulty in your employment, whether it be your marriage not going well, your friendships falling apart, folks that are blasting you on social media and there's no way you can get around it and they're lying on you, but the reputation is already destroyed. Remember this though. Though people may not speak well of you on social media, your reputation is temporary. Integrity is long-term. Folks will talk about you however they will. Jesus, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now. You are amazing on Sunday and Monday. By Thursday, crucify him. He's a criminal, wrong guy. We don't like him anymore. Your reputation is temporary because it's built, for the most part, on people's perception of you. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't need to do the right thing in order to try to build a good reputation. Please, don't do wrong and then blame everybody else for saying you're wrong. But generally speaking, you should not base your entire life and your stability on what folks think about you, your, their perception of your well-being, because it'll change in a minute. Your integrity is most important. And you live right every day, the reputation will change. It might have to be that it changes when you get to glory. And the one who really is the only one to whom we need to listen regarding how, how we, we self-identify, and he says, well done. Everybody else might be surprised. But as long as he says, well done, you're good. You're good. Rejoice always. 
Even when folks are blasting you, even when it's not going well, even when your life is tanking you, consider it a privilege that you can rejoice. And it's not just mind over matter. We're not talking about acting like things are good when things are bad. We're talking about really seeing a different thing than, is what, than what is being presented to you through the circumstances. Understanding something other than. Paul says, we're going through difficult times in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. While looking at the things that are not seen, the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen, he says, are eternal. And as a result, even though we are beaten and knocked down and destroyed and we feel terrible, we do not look at these present circumstances as anything to be troubled by because they are laying up for us an eternal weight of glory. He saw something beyond that which he was going through. And we have to be able to perceive truth beyond the facts. Are you listening to me? So Paul said, I'm not concerned. When people tell me not to go into a city and preach the gospel because difficulty awaits me, he says, that's my inheritance. Are you kidding? Am I going to stop simply because somebody doesn't like what i got to say? I am called to preach this gospel. And if necessary, lay down my life to do so. So I'm not concerned about my own life. I might lose it because I see something very different than everybody else sees. They want me to, my, 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 my church, my, my supporters, those who care about me the most, they want me to stay on this side. I'm not concerned about this side. What I'm most concerned about is pleasing my God every day. And even if it costs me my life, I see something different. I see that the persecution through which I'm going is laying up for me a, a weight of glory that I cannot even perceive right now. He saw something different. And thus, through his difficulty, he was able to tell people only that which he was living. Rejoice always. Even when it's hard. Especially when it's hard. Especially when it's hard. Rejoice. Jesus in Luke chapter 4 quotes a, a passage from the Old Testament. He's just come out of the wilderness been baptized by John the Baptist, went into the wilderness for 40 days, came out, and now he's beginning his ministry. And he goes back to his hometown in Nazareth, and he pulls out the scroll, and he turns to Isaiah chapter 61, and he begins to read, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, open the eyes of the blind, and set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he begins to read Isaiah 61. And the, 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 the lean of the passage, even though it stops after verse 2 of Isaiah 61, the lean of the passage, if you read it through, it says, he opened it to this passage and read, and after he finished, he sat down. But we do not have all of Isaiah 61 quoted there. We only have a part of it. We believe that Jesus read all of Isaiah 61, which highlights parts of his ministry that we don't consider most important to our well-being. Oh, we consider everything that's important to him really a part of his ministry, but we don't apply some of the things that he thought were important to his well-being or to his ministry to us. Now, we love the fact that he's going to deliver those who are, are, are captive and set them free. We love the fact that he's going to open the blind eyes, that he's actually going to forgive us, that he's going to release us as captives from that which has held us back. Those things are primary. We love all the benefits that seem to be most pronounced from the cross. But Jesus said in verse 3 of Isaiah 61, I come to give oil to those who are mourning, oil of gladness to those who are mourning, and the garland of praise to those who have a spirit of heaviness. 
And the spirit of heaviness happened to be, happens to be that which we would consider depression. It's a part of Christ's ministry to deal with your discouragement. Just as much as it is a part of his ministry to deal with your sin. To give forgiveness to you for what you've done wrong. His ministry, the anointing on his life, is to deal with your depression and your discouragement. And he says, this is the way I'm going to do it. My job is to come and give you an oil of joy for all of the stuff you're going through in mourning. And loss is difficult. It doesn't mean we ignore the loss. But it does mean that we have a remedy to the loss that the rest of the world doesn't have because we have Jesus Christ who's come to give a remedy specifically for that problem. Now, there may be many of you who need the assistance of those professionals to start with silent peace. <laughs> Wonderful psychologists and psychiatrists. Admirable profession, professionals to which we give a whole lot of reference and we love what they do. And you may be under prescription right now and you might be seeing somebody. I'm glad for you because we all need somebody, don't we? At some point, we need somebody. If you can't pay, pay somebody, you're going to call your girlfriend. You're going to talk to somebody. You're going to get your dog with you and say, hey, what would you think, what would you think about this? What do you think? What, what, what's going on? Help me. Help me with this. Somebody needs to be a sounding board to you. And whether you're lying down on the couch or whether you're talking on your phone, somebody needs to help you because nobody can get through life all by themselves. Not well. Not well. But with all of those kinds of help, sometimes we ignore Jesus. We think, well, you know, I, I don't know if he can. Does he? He specifically comes to deal with this. And loss is endemic to everybody. If you are privileged to, to live long enough, you will suffer loss. Somebody will die. You'll lose somebody you love dearly. And mourning will fill your soul. And mourning is all about what you lost. That's what mourning is. You no longer have the benefit of the person that, that was important to you. And you feel that loss. But Jesus says, I'm not trying to, to make you, to, to make the, the idea of, of their importance in your life diminish. In fact, I'm trying to highlight areas that you are ignoring. Rather than being mad about what you don't have anymore, be happy about what you got. Whoever has been important to you that you lost, you got more of them than I did. You got to experience their life more than I did. They valued you and added value to your life. They helped make you something that nobody else could. And that is important to remember. The, the oil of joy is present in at least the tradition that many of the New Orleans people do when somebody dies. You ever, you ever seen a funeral in New Orleans? I don't even know if they continue it, but when I was growing up and all during the 1900s, those folk would do stuff different. I couldn't understand a bit of it. A funeral procession with a band. We don't do that here. We, there's a hearse with a bunch of cars behind with blinking lights. There's no band. There's no people dancing in the streets. I thought these people are weird. Somebody died. And they dancing in the street. That's weird. That's they ought to be crying. Uh, it's 
Because somebody at some point, maybe it's just religious now or maybe it's just cultural, but somebody at some point read Isaiah 61 and said, God is supposed to give us the oil of joy for mourning. And there is a joy that we need to have about what the end is supposed to look like while we are in the middle of the hard. And if the end is going to be that which brings us contentment and we find joy in the perspective that is gained after we've gone through, then God wants to give us the privilege that we have in the Holy Spirit of receiving the joy now while we're going through the hard. It doesn't mean that we ignore the moments of pain. It means we add to it that which other people do not get because we do not mourn. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, we do not mourn as those who have no hope. We mourn differently. We mourn understanding that there's a life eternal. There's a life after what happens here that is free from the bondage and difficulty of this world. And although we miss the person who's gone, they ain't missing us. No, no. They're in the presence of Almighty God, happier than they've ever been. And want us to have the experience of saying, ah, stop, don't mourn for me anymore. I'm good. I'm really good. Now, I know you won't have me anymore, but you can't live in the pain of loss. And so God says, in, in, in fact, in his inaugural address, Jesus says this, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He says, I'm going to make you happy when you're saddest. And this is the benefit that he gives to those who are his. Rejoice always. We don't ignore our circumstances. We just add to them something that the world cannot have. And that grieving as those who have hope means this. We not only know what's happened to our beloved relatives who love Jesus, but we also know that at some point that awaits us. I'm not trying to get out of here in a hurry. I plan to be around here for a really long time, eating kombucha and pomegranate seeds and nuts. I plan to be around here a long time. I'm trying to extend my life so I can be really strong long. But I know mm, at some point I'm going to be happier on the other side than I am now. They don't sell Nikes in heaven. Won't have to get on another treadmill, won't have to lift another weight. Won't have to drink kombucha. I will be really happy. Won't have to think about eating right. No. God will be my all in all. And all the troubles of this world and trying to make sure that I'm right every day will not be a concern of mine anymore. So I grieve as somebody who has hope. Not only in my relative who has gone to be with the Lord and how happier they are than if they were with me. But realizing at some point, I'm going to get that privilege too. Wow. Rejoice always. Secondly, to give the garland of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Depression. Discouragement. If you allow discouragement to begin to knock on your door because you haven't fulfilled the dreams that you thought, life hasn't turned out the way you had hoped, your expectations have been, been dashed. You've been more disappointed than you have been fulfilled. If you allow that to be the order of the day and dominate your thoughts, discouragement will knock on your door. And at some point, if you don't tell it to go away, it'll break the door down. And it has some really nasty friends. Hopelessness. Depression. 
despondency. They come in and fellowship in your life. They camp out. They squat. And you got some problems now because you've entertained the thoughts too long. They become so natural to you. And, 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 and Jesus says this, I want to give you a garland of praise for all of that, meaning there is a, there is a, a, a raiment, a, a, a kind of clothing, and, as well as a, a hat, a turban that you would put on for a celebration. And you, he's saying this, I'm going to make you a prize, something that everybody looks at as, some, as somebody who's going to a, a moment that's celebratory rather than to a moment that's difficult. Instead of heaviness being the portion whereby you're walking around like Eeyore. Anybody remember Eeyore? Is he in the, is he in the public conscience of the millennial world? Eeyore! This, this, this depressed donkey. In, 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 who's, who's, Winnie the Pooh's world, this depressed donkey in Winnie the Pooh. All he did was go around with this cloud over his life, and he's depressed and mad and has nothing good to say ever. Instead of you being Eeyore, you can actually have something that looks like you just, you just came out of a moment that was the most happy. Because God is, God is bestowing upon you a, a garment of praise. A, 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 an environment whereby people can't tell how messed up your life is. And we're not talking about just a mask. We're talking about the reality of seeing something different rather than letting the circumstances determine the condition of your own soul. That this is part of his ministry is to make me happy even when I'm sad. It's a part of his ministry. And if I neglect that, and trying to get all the other things and applying faith only to the forgiveness I need and only to the deliverance I need from the sin of, of which I was a part. If I only apply the benefits of the cross and its ministry to that, I'm missing out on my daily. It's not just about being forgiven for your sin. It's also about making sure that your, con- your, your soul's condition is well and whole and that you can be the kind of person you ought to be every day without having to put on a mask. Rejoice always, every day, all day. Doesn't matter how bad it is. It's the privilege we have of seeing the beyond without submitting to the circumstances of the now. Secondly, he talks about how important it is for us to pray and not stop. Boy. Most of us think praying has more to do with our conversation, meaning our dialogue with God. Mm. He's not really that interested in what you got to say. I'm sorry. Um, He wants you to talk to him, but it's not because he's looking for information from you. He knows all things. He knows what you're going to say before you ask. He wants you to talk to him to develop a relationship with him. And he doesn't want you to talk to him Non-stop, this is not supposed to be a monologue. It's supposed to be a dialogue. Hopefully with you listening more than you're talking. But most of us do most of the talking when we're praying. We don't do a whole lot of listening. Do, do you have anybody in your life that talks a lot? Are you that person? In somebody else's life. Do you have anybody in your life who talks a lot? Yeah, like if if they're in the church and you see them coming through that door and you're over here, is your first response to like, 
Because you know, if you say hello, it's going to be 20 minutes. And you have not gotten one word in during the entire time. That's the way most of us are with God. Just talk, 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 talk. No relationship, no dialogue, no conversation. It's a monologue. That's not the kind of prayer about which Paul is speaking here. Paul is saying, I want you to communicate constantly with God so that there is an unbroken fellowship and relationship with him, not so you can just air your thoughts. I want you to be in communion with him. I don't want there to be a moment where you don't experience his presence. I want you to be in such oneness with him that you hear his thoughts and know his heart so that when you are communicating with the rest of humanity, when you are engaging other people in their life's problems, because you've been with him so much and so often, you don't need now three days to pray about whatever their problem is, their conundrum, their untieable knot. You can bring a solution immediately because you have the heart of God. You've been in communion with him, in fellowship with him, and you know exactly what needs to be ministered to them. Even if you don't have the theological point, you've been in communication with him to such a degree that you can give a word of knowledge by the gift of the Spirit. That's how he wants us to be with him. That's what prayer without ceasing looks like. And you don't become weird. You're not that person that when somebody begins to talk to you, says, mm. eh. You're supposed to engage with the world and bring solutions and help to them. And so it's not... It's not proper for us to so, be in, in, to so be heavenly minded that we find ourselves of very little earthly good. Everything that, we, everything that we understand from the Father, we need to bring to people to help them. Pray without ceasing. Really important that we are constantly in communication with the Father. And then lastly... Give thanks. Now I'm convinced that the first two, finding ourselves in a place of rejoicing and being in constant fellowship with the Father, are pavement to get to the place of thanksgiving that just won't stop. Won't stop. Primarily because if the Father has revealed to you how to legitimately rejoice in the environments where nobody thinks it's proper, and if you are with the Father on a regular basis, the kind of unbroken fellowship you have provides strength and help for you on a regular basis, gives you answers that you would not have otherwise, and a sense of security that whatever man does to you, it can't supplant what God is doing for you. He's still got you in his hand. You haven't left his presence, and he's going to bring you through safely, either into his arms or through the circumstance, one or the other. He might even just deliver you from it. If you get in those two environments of constant rejoicing and constant prayer, it's hard to not be grateful all the time. Even when you find yourself having prayed and been disappointed that God said no. The request that you thought was so important for him to fulfill, he chose not to and didn't give you a reason as to why he said no. I mean, our God is something, isn't he? 
We expect him. To, we demand stuff from God. You, if, 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 if I, when I get to heaven, I'm going to talk to him about a certain thing. I'm going to ask him, I can't believe God would allow that kind of thing to happen. <laughs> you blaming God for what man did stupid? Really? Is, is that what you're saying? I, I realize that there are difficulties through which people have gone. And you really had, you had no way to get out of the circumstance. Maybe you were abused as a child. Somebody treated you really bad. And you got this nagging splinter in your brain that constantly says, where was God? How come he didn't stop that person? Why didn't he get that person? Why didn't he get them? They hurt me really, really bad. Well, this world is going in the wrong direction. Always has been. And generally speaking, until he comes back, always will be. We're swimming upstream all the time. You know those chase scenes in the movies where folks are driving, weaving in and out of traffic and somebody makes a, a quick U-E and goes the opposite direction in traffic? That's us. We make a U-turn and everything in the world is coming at us. And boy, we got to develop some driving skills. I just sit there whenever I see that. I say, <laughs> And I, have, I find myself trying to navigate around obstacles every day of my life, going the wrong direction, because the world has everything set backwards. And we are going the right way, but it's going the wrong way. And it makes it very hard for us to navigate through life well, but we're called to do it. There's no other way around it. We can't shirk our responsibility. And because the world has been set in the wrong direction, somehow we naturally extrapolate from that that it's God's fault because he had all power. He has all power. He can fix stuff, right? He can stop people from doing stuff, right? Well, yeah, but, but where, where do you want him to start? I mean, we all have our, our places that we want God to intervene, right? Stop that right there, that bad thing, that horrible thing, that crime, stop but we don't want him to stop our sin. We want him to stop everybody else's sin. Mm, you know, would you like him just to take the accelerator on the floor of your car and make it stop at 55? Or maybe if you go to 56, bring down a lightning bolt on your car. How, how would you like it to happen? His standard operating procedure is to not stop human beings. Not. He hadn't stopped you. He loves you so much, he'll let you screw up your life. He'll let you make really bad decisions. What do you want him to do? Make you a robot? He's made you in his image. A, a self-willed moral being. Where do you want him to stop stuff? Everybody has their thing. They want him to quit. Make stop. Don't let that happen. But nobody wants to bring it in their own house. Be careful what you ask for. Because if you ask it for them, the log in your eye and the speck in your brother's, be careful. It's called wrong judgment. 
Well, God, get them because they're really, really bad. Pastor Rice Brooks, and I've had this circumstance happen to me on the plane. Pastor Rice Brooks, who wrote the book, uh, God's Not Dead, upon which the movie, three movies were based. Best, best friend. Been walking with him for 38 years. He tells the story of being on a plane with a man, and he, Pastor Rice was sitting in 4A. The other guy was sitting in 4B. And they begin dialoguing. And Pastor Rice is an amazing communicator, a great apologist, meaning somebody who knows how to defend the faith. And so he's talking with this guy, and this guy is bringing up concerns. And remember, help me. Let, let me help you. There are no new issues that people can bring up. They've all been recycled, every one of them. So this guy brings up something and says, well, I can't believe in God if he's going to allow bad things to happen. I mean, he ought to just get the people who are doing the bad stuff immediately. I can't believe he wouldn't judge somebody for, 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 for child molestation or rape or murder. I can't believe if God were really a good God. If he's really existed, surely he'd deal with that. I said, mm, 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 okay, that's, that's a point. That's a point. But, but let me ask you a question. Um, uh, have, have you ever done anything wrong? Like faithful to your wife? Don't tell me. Have you been faithful to your wife? Don't tell me. He said, well, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> well, you want God to get people who sin, right? Yeah. Well, he might have to start in 4B. <laughs> Where do you want it to start? Are you the one who draw, draws the line? Because you would draw it with everybody else and put yourself behind it. When we talk about what it means to judge rightly and to put ourselves in a position where we are always grateful, hear me, I realize bad stuff happens to people. Bad stuff happened to me. But the good thing is this. I'm not concentrating on the pain. I'm concentrating on the remedy. I'm still breathing. Yeah, I went through stuff that had nothing. I, I wasn't responsible. Other people were responsible. But I'm still breathing. And God gave me the privilege of finding him after it happened. And now I can find healing for the stuff that went bad in my life. I'm grateful. This is why he says give thanks in everything. Not about everything, but in it. I can thank him for all the stuff that I went through because I had him to go through it with and he preserved me. And I came out, and though I wasn't well when I came out, he brought me to a place where I could find healing from him and now I am well and it doesn't even look like I went through stuff. I, only, I, I, I went through fire, yet the smell of smoke is not on my life because Jesus was with me through the fire. My point is this, don't let your trouble define you. Every day of your life, you'll fight being a victim. Be mad at everybody else who's done you bad. Never trust human beings again. Don't let that be you. Building up walls of defenses that nobody can ever climb and you can't get out of. Nobody can get in and you can't get out. Living separate from humanity while you're in them and with them. Don't let that be you. Instead, wake up one day and say, Lord, I thank you 
that you brought me through. I'm still in pain, but if you brought me through, you're going to help me get right and think right. So I come to your presence. I thank you for the benefits that you brought to me with the cross, and you actually want to make my soul whole. I thank you. That's why what I said earlier, that these two things, rejoicing and spending time in his presence, allow you the privilege of looking through your circumstances and beyond them and seeing things that make make, uh, Thanksgiving become a natural outgrowth of that which you've been through with respect to the perspective you gained of what it means to rejoice in your difficulty and be someone who figures out how to constantly be with them. Thanksgiving just naturally flows. And you are no longer waiting for the next thing for God to prove himself to you for which you need to be thankful. Now you're just thankful to be able to do this. Grateful to my God. I'm grateful to you because you gave me the privilege of living long enough to find you. And you are my help. I'm not going to be mad anymore at those people. I'm not going to let this thing in the past define me anymore. I'm going to honor you for the privilege of being able to address it in your presence and find the ultimate version of healing. Thanksgiving. Your God cares about you, and it is a miracle that he has preserved you while you you were going the wrong direction, though it was the right direction, in opposition to the direction of the world. He has been so good. You are still alive. And for that, you can raise your hands and praise him on a regular basis. Are you listening to me? I'll close with this. Sometimes I have to boil it down to one thing. I get up in the morning. My life isn't going well. I got a bunch of emails from folk who didn't like what I said on Sunday. (laughs) People talking about me bad on the Internet. I get it. Sometimes I just get up in the morning and I say, Lord... I'm grateful I ain't going to hell. Just want you to know, life may not be very happy here, but I'm grateful I'm not going to hell today. I'm not going to let the circumstances of my life define how I relate to you. I will not. I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to spend time with you, and I'm going to give you thanks as an act of worship, even though there are very few things that I can find in my life that demand thanksgiving being given to you. I'm going to boil it down to the fact of one thing. If nothing good ever happens to me again, if nothing good ever happens to me again, the one thing that did happen is that he died for me. And I'm grateful. I'm really grateful. Lord, help us, please. Help us to find you always in the midst of our trouble, to give you thanks and worship because you're so good, to not blame you, to never accuse you, 